From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Our food supply is facing violent shocks, pandemic, war and flood. Underpinning the problem is the catastrophe of climate change, which will impact not only us, but our neighbours too, creating implications for national security. Today, journalist Esther Linder on a looming food crisis that Australia isn't prepared for and what it will mean for how we eat. It's Monday, August 8. Esther, food security was not something that you heard talked about much, even a couple of years ago, but a lot has changed, including the conversations that we now have about food availability. And I think we've become somewhat used to the idea that certain foods might just not be available to us in supermarkets, right? Yeah, I think definitely with the pandemic, that was introduced to a lot of people as, you know, seeing empty supermarket shelves. Um I think before that, though, food security was something that a lot of Australians really took for granted. So only a couple of years ago, the Australian Food and Grocery Council was actually bragging about how good Australia's food security was. It said in 2020 that, quote, we produce enough food to feed 75 million people. Supply chains were described as safe, efficient and reliable. And our wheat production amounted to 3.5% of the world's entire supply. But since then, there have been a series of shocks to the food supply. Floods have hit crucial food-growing regions, like in New South Wales. The war in Ukraine meant that Ukrainian grain was blockaded from leaving the country, which has had huge impacts on countries in Africa and elsewhere. And all kinds of shocks like these are hitting us all at the same time. And the result is we have shortages of food and things that usually are staples, things that we would normally expect to see, you know, we always expect to see apples at the supermarket because they've been marked as this like basic item in the catalogue, but they may not always be available. So I think for a lot of people, that's the first time that that's happened. And it's a bit of a wake up call to how vulnerable our systems really are. Mm. And these shocks that you're talking about that have happened one by one over the past few years War is obviously one of them, but the bigger one, the thing that's having the most impact on on our access to food here in Australia, that would be the effects of climate change, right? Definitely. The core issue is climate change. And I think the way that that's playing out is both a long-term and a short-term thing. So, for example, the Murray-Dialing Basin is the source of half of Australia's agricultural output. And it's because of climate change is expected to halve in production by 2050 meaning that food both in quantity and quality will become scarcer. Now, the IPCC has predicted and warned about the increasing amount of disasters, the general way that temperatures will rise, are all increasing. But it's at the same time harder to see how those shocks and disasters will interact with each other and also with our food supply. Europe is also scorching. In France, meteorologists in the western part of the country calling it a heat apocalypse. So while wildfires rage across Western Europe... The first grain shipment to sail from Ukraine since the start of Russia's invasion has now left. The grain blockade of Ukrainian ports. A latest study has revealed that nearly all of the world's glaciers are losing mass at an alarming pace. 
contributing to more than a fifth of the global sea level rise this century. And the rate of glacier melt in the poles accelerates exponentially. Research bodies such as the IPCC can't envisage the full impact of these cascading crises. So, in essence, the climate is changing and will continue to, and this is only going to put further pressure on a domestic food supply. It's essentially inevitable. However, what is within our ability to control is the way in which industry deals with our domestic food supply. As it stands, Australia's supply chain is inefficient at best, and it's probably more accurately characterised as absurd. Okay, well... Let's talk about the supply chain then. In what ways is it absurdly inefficient? Well, so if you grow mangoes in the Northern Territory, they don't immediately get sold in the Northern Territory. They get trucked down to Adelaide, which is a distance of about 3,000 kilometres. They get processed and then they get sent back up to Darwin to be sold. And when you think about that in terms of emissions, in terms of fuel, in terms of so many things, it's just really absurd and really inefficient. And that's just one example of how vulnerable our food supply chains are, because in January, that trucking route was cut off by flooding. Flooding and severe storm damage in South Australia has the potential to impact major supply routes for weeks to come. Supply chain chaos has been caused by severe storms this week, which flooded the transcontinental freight line linking the Northern Territory and South Australia. It's been terrible, really. We ran out of food and fresh food in town uh, last Friday. Fortunately, the authorities allowed a truckload of food to come through the, the floodwaters. We certainly won't be trading tomorrow only because we'll be out of stock. Um, if the truck comes in on Monday, we'll be okay. And it meant that there were food shortages in the NT for a couple of weeks. Despite the fact that there's all of these farms surrounding Darwin with all of this fresh produce, it couldn't be trucked down to Adelaide, so it couldn't be processed, so it couldn't be sold. And that's kind of ridiculous. That's just one example of the way that our food supply network has been set up that doesn't make sense for a future that's going to be dictated by climate change and the kinds of shocks that we'll continue to see. So while these shortages that we're seeing today on supermarket shelves are obviously annoying and disruptive, they actually point to a bigger issue here, that we're failing at multiple levels to properly plan for food security and the impacts of climate change, and that could have an ongoing huge impact on what we're actually able to eat in the future. We'll be back in a moment. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Esther, we've been talking about the food supply chain, the way that produce is trucked back and forth over these vast distances, which seems inefficient. But I think the bigger point that you're making here is that these supply chains are vulnerable and we're already starting to see that with climate events like flooding. If this problem isn't fixed, if our food security continues to be impacted by climate change, what does that mean for the food that we might have access to in the future? I think in Australia what you eat is dependent on what you earn and where you live and, in essence, who you are. So it's not necessarily that people won't have enough food to eat here in Australia. It's more like we won't have the right food. So groups of Australians that already have worse nutrition and have a harder time accessing food are marginalised groups like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, refugees, people under the poverty line and international students. And that figure may be as high as 13%. And when you're talking about First Nations communities, that figure rises to about 23%. And so I think, you know, those are the immediate problems that we're seeing at home in terms of social policy and on the individual level of someone going to the supermarket and, you know, seeing that the price of broccoli is too high and then choosing something that's cheaper but not quite as nutritious. On the individual level, that's one thing. But then on the global level, you have to think about all of the people that, you know, might not even be able to access the supermarket, that they're accessing food through aid or through an agency or, you know, like there's so many other people that have even fewer options than we do. Right. So this is happening all over the world. So does that mean that food security isn't just about what it is that we'll be eating, but what it could do to our region, even to our national security? Well, it's interesting because in June, a group of defence and policy leaders actually released a report that was looking at this exact issue. It's called the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group, and they were looking at how food security and national security are linked, essentially. And the report described Australia and the Asia-Pacific as a disaster alley for climate change, which is pretty concerning. But they say that governments in Canberra haven't properly planned for the impact of cascading events and climate shocks. The report also noted that predictions of two degrees of warming may see Southeast Asia's crop production decline by one third per capita by 2040, as well as Australia's own crop production, which is also meant to decline as a result of increased heat. It says that small island developing nations in the Pacific are especially vulnerable to the effects of drought and flooding on food production. Mm. And so coming back to the domestic situation, are there any solutions on the table at the moment? Are there things that can be done here at home to stop this from escalating any further, changing the way that we grow and, and transport food, for example? I think looking at it from a holistic perspective is really necessary. You need to look at it not only from the individual level of someone not being able to afford food, so, you know, inflationary pressures, things that we can do to ease the cost of living, but also from a multinational level. You know, how can we look at changing the crops that we grow or altering them to make them more heat resistant or growing them in different places? Um, there are some adaptation action plans within the states of Victoria and Queensland, which are promising. There's also the Goulburn-Murray Resilience Strategy, which is essentially a framework made up by a group of over 250 community stakeholders that looks at things from a holistic way. 
But I think a lot more needs to be done and it needs to be done on a federal level to make sure that people aren't struggling. So at the end of the day, we need shorter supply chains, we need circular economies, we need more equitable access to food, but we also need to look at climate change as something that is going to impact everyone. It's not just the people on the lower end of the system. Esther, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ruby. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, the UN's nuclear watchdog has called for an end to military action near Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear plant was hit by shelling on Friday, causing one of the reactors to shut down and creating what the UN watchdog has called a very real risk of a nuclear disaster. And a large number of Chinese military aircraft and ships crossed the halfway mark of the Taiwan Strait on Saturday. The median line has been seen as a key territorial boundary between mainland China and Taiwan. The crossing came on the third day of exercises by the Chinese military, which experts say appear to simulate a land strike on the self-governing island of Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its own. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.